and welcome back to The Scriptures Are Real. I'm your host for today, Lamar, and this is my co-host and regular host, Jerry Mulestein. Hey, Lamar. Hey, everyone. How are you? I just realized uh, we uh, I only have a first name. I don't have a last name, but you have. <laughs> you're like you're like a title. Jerry Mulestein's yeah. like a title. <laughs> uh, you, you used to have a last name. I know. Newmeyer's last name, but uh, I, I just, you know, ever since I did comedy uh, or started in comedy, People couldn't get over my first name. The, the white guy Lamar. They just, they just <laughs> never got the last name. They would, true story. They would even sign my checks uh, at the comedy club just Lamar for like first six months. They didn't even know what my last <laughs> name was. So, That's funny. <laughs> so anyway, uh, well anyway, glad glad to see you back here, or glad that I'm back on here. And today we are going to be covering Acts six through nine. And uh, if you've already, if you've been following along, you will have heard Carrie talk about the first part of Acts, Acts 1 through 5. So just to, to set the stage, if, if you're just joining now or if you haven't heard the, the previous episode, uh, go check that out. But Acts is uh, an interesting book. It's not a complete history, but it seems to hit the highlights of what happened. So it's, we attribute it to Luke, and Luke is uh, writes in two parts. He writes the gospel part, which is the... Uh, the, uh, you know, the happenings of Jesus and from the beginning and, and gives a whole history there. And then the second part is, and this is what happens after he's gone and it picks up there and we see some new, new faces and we see how the church grows. And, uh, and that's kind of the background of where we find ourselves in Luke and, and Carrie uh, covered all that. So um, check out his previous episode on that, but that's where we are today. And we're going to have Saul and Paul that is going to come on the scene. But first we have a few things that happen here. Uh, let's start out in chapter six, and I want to get your uh, your ideas on this, uh, uh, Carrie. So, um, why does uh, Stephen uh, comes in here in chapter six? And right. we have uh, the rest of the Christian world would call this the appearance of the deacons. So we yeah. have the the church that's growing. It's it's now I've heard estimates twenty to twenty five thousand people at this point that have joined the church in this area or in the, in the Galilean area. And they uh, are trying to manage this. They, they can't all meet at one place. They're now, so they're, they say, well, we've, we've got to break this up. And, and the, what I want to get your idea was, is it, they, they say, um, let me find the passage here. Um, they say, wherefore brethren, look out you among your, uh, among your seven men of honest, report full of the holy ghost and wisdom so they find some good people and they appoint them over the business and they say this in verse four this is a uh, acts chapter six verse four but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word they oh well they should go back to two uh, verse two the 12 called the multiple of the disciples under them and said it is not reason that we should leave the word of god and serve tables yeah okay so let's unpack that. What's what are they saying? So and it, it really starts in verse one. You've got this interesting dichotomy that we still I mean, I think every individual faces today. Uh, we face it in the organization of the church. Uh, I think it's been worked out extremely well. I mean, nice of me to say so. But um, uh, but even on a ward level or an, a family level or an individual level, you have this um, kind of terror between like religious belief and faith and where the rubber hits the road that you go out and serve and you you take care of people right 
And uh, it starts with this dispute among in uh, the King James Version. It talks about there arose murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews. I, I think maybe Hellenists would be better. So these are all Jews. Um, right now, we still have uh, all Jewish converts. We haven't gotten yet to where uh, that's next week's reading, where we're going to start to say, yeah, the gospel can go to um, to Gentiles is the phrase they would use. Uh, so that's a big, big thing that we'll talk about next week. Um, but the uh, the difference is that you have some Jews who have said we are not going to have anything to do with uh, or very as little to do as possible with uh, Hellenistic culture. So Hellenistic means Greek culture, right? Ellis is uh, the Greek word for Greek. Um, and Greek culture is spread all throughout the region. Uh, and these are a group that are saying, we are not going to have anything to do with this. And uh, and then you've got, that's the the Hebrews. And the Hellenists are the ones that are like, we, we can still be good Jews and adopt Greek culture. So uh, that plays out in our own lives in a couple of ways. So for example, you could say that that's uh, the difference between people who are dressing like in, in shorts and a t-shirt as opposed to those who are still dressing in pioneer style dress, right? And we have mm -hmm. some some breakoffs of Mormonism who have basically said, no, that's going too far when you're, you're adopting the culture around us too much um, when you start dressing that way. Uh, but even among the, you know, kind of mainstream LDS culture, you still, I would say, in my opinion, the biggest spiritual battles we are fighting today is how much are you allowing the world to influence the way you see and think things um and uh, I, I in many ways many of us are losing that battle and all of us are having to struggle with that battle it's hard to not be too influenced by the world so this is an age-old struggle and you have this group um that are are fairly hellenized uh, that somehow their their widows are not being taken care of. And you can find different people. Some people will say, well, what's happened is that the um, the Jews in general tend to take care of their widows, but these people, because they're they're both Hellenized and they are, have become Christian, they've just been cut out. So they're not getting taken care of by the Jews, or maybe it's actually uh, the Christians. So these are, again, they're all Jews. And at this point, they still think of themselves as Jews. They're, they're just Jews who have accepted Christ as the Messiah, but they haven't uh, got the idea that we quit obeying the law of Moses or anything along those lines. They're very Jewish and just different ideas of how to be Jewish. Um, but the Christians are, are, are probably also trying to take care of the widows. And somehow one group is not getting as taken care of as another group, or maybe they are all getting taken care of, but this one group has said it's not, or they're all being taken care of equally, but it's not enough. And it's the Hellenistic Jews that have raised up the point that it's not enough. One way or another, the issue is that there are people who are not uh, who can't take care of themselves who are not being taken care of the way that the gospel teaches us we should take care of them and they want to know what to do about it and the 12 are saying I, I, we can't do what our primary calling is and that calling it's too much we we just can't do it and that's a struggle that uh, we all will have to have how much time are you as an individual going to spend like studying the scriptures and um, fasting and so on. And how much time are you going to go spend going out and pulling weeds from someone's lawn and, and, uh, taking casseroles to someone who's sick or whatever else, right? You, you got to find that balance for yourself and church leaders are always having to readjust to find that balance. Yeah. You know, uh, there, I've heard some, uh, some other 
Christian commentaries say something about this, where it says um, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And I've heard some people say that that is the uh, the twelve, the apostles or the twelve mm-hmm. as they're called here, uh, being kind of haughty, like oh, we're too important for that. I, I'm not sure that's what it's saying. Yeah, maybe it is, but I I don't know that I. I, I, if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I'm going to err on the side of, of grace rather than, than the justice side. I'm not going to yeah. lay that. Maybe maybe they're not saying that uh, we're too good to serve tables, but just the way it's translated here, it just looks like, well, you know, we have some other things to do um, instead of care, you know, care for them. This is why we have the Melchizedek and the, and the, uh, and the Aaronic priesthood, right? We separate these yeah. duties out because— and That's how it will fall out here, right? Yeah. Yeah, the ironic is going to take care of the physical things, the you know the, the the lesser priesthood, but it doesn't mean that those people are lesser or that their contribution is lesser. Right. That's what I'm getting at. I think that when we talk about serving in the church, whether you're the bishop or whether you're the, you know, a a, a, a counselor in the deacon's quorum, um, they're all necessary parts. They're all part of the same body. They're also the you know just appendages of that. So who wants to do without a finger or without a certain organ or you know? Right. You know, these are important things. So I, I don't know that I'm going to be that harsh and say, well, they're just trying to be too snotty about it and they don't want to serve tables. I don't know. I've seen a lot of bishops out there serving at tables at, you know, various functions and they're out there. doing. So yeah. I don't think that's a lesser thing. I think it's just they're trying to divide up the work and that's what, how it how it comes out to. That's unless you have a different opinion. That's kind of what no. I think. I, in fact, I think you could say it this way. I think they're saying, you know, we have a core and central responsibility, and some of those things are things that only we can do, and there are other right. things that anyone can do. So it's not a good idea for us to go and do the things that anyone can do, because then the stuff that only we can do isn't going to get done. Exactly. And that's just bad administration, right? Right. Um, so maybe, and we've certainly seen the church struggling with this in our day, like as the church grows, and that's what they're struggling with. The church is growing. And there's still only 12 of us, right? How do we how do we do that? We've certainly seen that in the church today. And it, and it happens in all sorts of ways. So it, just as a, an interesting example, I, I think in our last state conference, which was in April, um, and we had a, a visiting um, area authority. And in the leadership meeting, he said something that, uh, that I loved. But, um, he said, hey, I want uh, all the Relief Society presidencies and Elders Quorum presidencies to listen. The bishop's primary responsibility is to work with the youth. So if you see the bishop doing something that isn't with the youth, you need to go and say, how can we do this instead? And I said, hallelujah. But um, uh, you see what it's that same kind of thing. Uh, Okay, if that is what the bishop is supposed to do, then we need to get someone else to do the other things. And I think that's exactly what the apostles are saying. You know, and I when I was in a uh, I was the high priest group leader at one point. Uh, before that was rolled into the elders form. I remember uh, those days. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, it was there for four years. And um, I had a, 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 one of the assistants say, uh, you know, he would constantly want to say, well, let's ask the bishop about that. And I said, "Uh, no, uh, let's not ask the bishop about that. I think that we make decisions here the best that we can, unless it absolutely needs the bishop. But if it's something that we can do, the bishop doesn't need to weigh in on this. He's yeah, got let's, lots let's of things save to do. the bishop. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't uh, don't hit him about that. So let's let's not let's let's get um let's get these things done as the best that we can. And uh, if there's something we need or he needs to correct us, 
then okay. But I, I don't think so. I think we we do these things. So um, that's part of it. And here, I have another question that, that rolls into this, but it may be better dealt with in the next episode. And maybe it's too large for this, but why do you think that the Lord uh, restricts his ministry, Jesus restricts his ministry just to the Jews? And at this point, the apostles are under the same uh, mm -hmm. conception that, or concept that they are going to be teaching to the Jews. They don't teach the Gentiles. In fact, Peter, Simon Peter, fights against it at first. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. You yeah. Um, why is that? Why does the Lord restrict it? That seems mm, unfair. Uh, it, it may seem unfair. In my opinion, this is, again, just good administration. Um, and I think there's also some holiness issues here. So we could put it this way. And we saw this in the intercessory prayer, um, which I think you and I talked about, but um, <clears throat> that you have uh, the Lord, God himself, we're, we're so cut off from God's presence, God isn't going to deal with us directly. So instead, he sends his son. But his son typically doesn't deal with all of mankind directly. Instead, his son finds people who will make a covenant with him. And then they've been changed enough when they make and keep that covenant that he works with them. And he sends them to go get other people. And those other people, then they, they have to get those other people to make a covenant. And when they've made that covenant, then they can uh, come to Christ and then Christ is going to bring them to the father. Right now, that doesn't mean that there's no spiritual outpouring for people who are earned spiritual gifts or, or experiences with Christ for people who haven't made a covenant. But in terms of getting the work done, that's the way it's going to work. It's going to be the father sends the son, the son sends uh, covenant keepers, covenant keepers, get other people to make the covenant. And you have to get the covenant keepers strong enough. You could put it this way. You could say, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, right? right. Um, and so I think that Christ's role will always be to work with the covenant people. That's just, that's what it always is. So when he comes in his ministry, he works with the covenant people and he gets them to the point where they are ready. And you see this growth in the church and you see the, the growth in the apostles. And once they are really able to, to move bigger right and i think this episode is part of it they can't take the gospel to all uh the the gentiles of the world if they're serving tables as it were right not that serving tables is beneath them but they can't do both they have right. to get to where they start to delegate and i think this is part of it they have to start to learn okay we can send other people uh to do uh, both physical things but also spiritual things um we can delegate and it, it's when they've gotten that big um, and that uh, stable that they've started to do that, that he can say, okay, here's the next phase. We're going to send you to everyone. And we have talked about this a little bit uh, back in the Old Testament last year. We talked about this, that yeah. a lot of times we think on a very uh, small time scale. We think about yeah. our lifetimes or the lifetimes of people. But we're, you know, we talked about this when we talked about Noah. I mean, he wiped out a lot of people, which seems pretty unfair to wipe out everybody. But again... In his time frame, on his scale, they'll have a time. They're, they're not cast off. They're not shortened. Their experience isn't cut. There'll, there's different times and seasons for different things. Yeah. And as far as we follow in the in the in the Bible tradition, um, we know that this is the the information on there. Now there may be other things that are happening in other parts of the world or other tribes or whatever that are cut off. I mean that happens. You know, the, the Book of Mormon is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, but for the, what we have here, he's only working as fast as he can go. And we find that even in, in our own church, that it takes a while 
to get going and figure out, well, we can do this. We can expand here. You know, let's bring down these borders. This isn't unclean, these things. And you were talking about the, the cultures. Well, you know, so I, I constantly am uh, thinking about this uh, in, in different leadership capacities. What part of culture is just part of culture that's okay? And what part of it is good or bad? I mean, yeah. there's some things that, that, uh, that you're like, this is not a good thing in our culture. And there are other yeah. things that you're saying, this is just the way culture is. I mean, do you wear yeah. a tie or do you wear a scarf or do you wear the big puffy shirts like in the 1800s or do you, yeah. uh, do you wear a waistcoat? Is it a vest? Is that important? Or is it that you're wearing what is appropriate for Sunday in your, in your period of time? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yep. administration of things. So not to get too in the weeds with these little things, but that's what the church is experiencing here. They're experiencing uh, some culture infusions. I mean, think about if you were going to organize a brand new steak that's, let's say, in my neck of the woods here in, in Arizona, you have a, a Spanish steak and you have a, a, a you know regular American English speaking steak and you're, they speak different languages. They're not quite on the same page that the Spanish people have or the you know, Mexican uh, have, have certain traditions and certain things that they, you know, so you're balancing these things. I, that's how yeah. I kind of see this as a fusion between those things. They're trying to separate, separate out what's important, what's not important, how do we move the, the work forward and care for the widows. That's the end of the day, <laughs> care for the widows and take care of the church. That's what we're looking for. Yeah. And, and we're going to continue. We've seen it lots in our lifetime. We've seen um, the church having to change its administrative structure and having to say, okay, these things actually aren't important. So we don't have to do those when we're in Africa or uh, the Philippines. Uh, but these things are important and you need to do them everywhere. And yeah. these elements of uh, culture we can uh, accommodate. And there are some elements of some cultures we're not going to accommodate, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so the beating of women and things like that, right? I, right, I can right. remember uh, President Oaks in a couple of talks being pretty explicit about that. Like, if this is part of your culture, you have to stop it. It's not yeah. okay. That's and not okay. Um, uh, that's something that uh, I think it's interesting to watch us going through some of the same things that, that we're seeing Peter and the gang go through. So, one of my takeaways from this also is the church can change a policy here and there and not be untrue. Okay. We can yeah. move, we can change the thing. It's like we were doing this, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do this now. Doesn't mean it's untrue. Maybe things change. Was it wrong before? Maybe wrong, maybe not. But again, I'm going to err on the side of, you know, the, the mercy of the judgment. I'm not going to cast judgment on those things. They were doing it then. Let's do it this way now. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's um, kind of one of my takeaways on that. And I love that they choose, you know, you talk about deacons, and this does seem to fall out to be uh, kind of, a, it doesn't talk about Melchizedek and Aaronic Priesthood Division, but it does seem to fall out in that way. And actually the word uh, uh, deaconos is, is, it means to minister. Mm -hmm, uh, right. uh, and so they're choosing ministers, but they do seem to be priesthood offices. And we get that a little bit. I, I mean, the first uh, two that are mentioned the others we don't really hear too much about, but you hear about Stephen and Philip and you're like, yeah, those are two pretty heavy hitters there. Uh, and you see they both are working all sorts of miracles. But it's also clear because um, Philip is baptizing people, but not giving them the gift of the Holy Ghost. To me, that's an indication that he probably is a deacon or, or a, a priest. At least today we say only priests can baptize. And I don't know if they had those quorums arranged exactly the same way do we do now or whatever, but 
Um, he doesn't seem to have that ability to to give the gift of the Holy Ghost, only to baptize. And so it does seem to fall out in that way as they are kind of figuring out uh, the administration and spheres of responsibility of priesthood holders and that kind of a thing uh, during this time period. Yeah, yeah, and like I mentioned before, this isn't. We know that Acts is not a complete uh, picture of everything that happened. We're getting just the highlight reel of what happened there. There's a lot of other things we don't. And I've, I've listened to some other Christian commentators, and I'm like, we really don't understand how laying on of hands worked. We would, well, maybe it's not clear there. That's why revelation. That's why. Yeah. That's why you need things to clear up. Uh, did I just do a Joe Biden there? That's weird. Okay, so I'll do that. <laughs> um, but that's why you need um, a revelation is to fill in some of the things that were not. This was, wasn't meant to be an entire handbook for the church. It was supposed to be kind of a history and some some of the highlights. And I yeah. see some of these guys like Philip and, and uh, Stephen as as being, they sound like some of the early bishops in, in the 1800s in our church. That yeah. They kind of took on that role, like a leadership type of role in, in the in their congregation so yeah the noel knight and edward partridge of the early yeah, church right exactly so, that yeah exactly that. yeah and the word deacon is not even used in this in these in acts but it just has no. the has the the kind of connotation that we later associate with with uh, yeah. deacons from the bible okay and you'll find so, most most uh, other uh christians talk about these uh, guys as being deacons yeah the the, the seven deacons so and I love okay. the little phrases you get here, although in some ways we might equate it more with seven presidents of the 70. But anyway, um, yeah. it's this seven number, right? And maybe that's why they've chosen it. Uh, it's one to be over each day of the week to administer to the widows, or is it because of the symbolism of seven? I don't know. But I love you get phrases like in, in chapter six, verse eight, and you'll get similar things uh, said in chapter seven about Philip, where it says, uh, or actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Right. That's that's just great stuff. They're they are working miracles like the apostles are. And, right. and why not? And that's all wonderful. Right. But that causes problems because the Jewish leaders start to get jealous of them just the way they got jealous of uh, of Christ. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, that, that right in nine through 15, we see that they in 13, it says instead of false, false witnesses. Um, so they, they have some things that uh, in fact, no, even in verse 11. And they and they stubborn men which said so stubborn is um, means to uh, to um, give false testimony but secretly like a secret false testimony is what they're doing yeah. here um, yeah. so they're secretly induced uh, I think the New International Version of the Bible says is secretly induced I think they uses that word that's I, I have a note in my in my um, in my digital scriptures that says secretly induced in the NIV uh -huh. so. So they, so they, some, for some subterfuge, they, they bring in some people and like, Hey, you know, tell them that they're saying this. And so they basically have false testimony against Stephen. That's what it is. Yeah. It's false testimony against Stephen. And that's where six ends. In fact, again, these weren't, Luke didn't divide these up into chapters. He, he just yeah, said long letter. One. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but we kind of broke it up just, you know, kind of completions of thought. So anyway, six, seven, and eight all go together in like one big story. Yeah, and so, I, I misspoke earlier when I said that uh, Philip was in seven. Uh, Philip's miracles are in eight, but anyway, he's in eight. but he's but he's it, it's in the same group. I know what you're saying. Yeah, and he's, he started. I mean, we've learned about him in six, but anyway, yeah, right. He's he's introduced there, but the whole thing is this is Stephen and Philip that happen all together. So Stephen is accused uh, of these things and he bears false testimony, and he's brought before the uh, the Sanhedrin, and um, and they start to to question him on that. In fact, what's their question? 
Um, it's fairly, uh, and the council looking steadfast, this is in 15, steadfast on him and saw his face, it was the face of an angel. You know, you'd think that they would get a clue that if he has the face of an angel, I don't know, maybe they don't see it that way. Maybe yeah. other people that see it describe him that way, but he has the face of an angel. So clearly the spirit is on him and they, they ask him some questions and Steve, I'm not sure why Stephen does this, but it's interesting. He launches into an entire history of the Jewish people from like from the beginning. It starts off with Abraham yeah. and goes all the way down through. So, yep. Gary, what's your thought? What is it? Why does he do this? Why does he go through and give a complete history? Yeah, it's Jews kind of interesting uh, because yeah, it seems a bit rambling, and and it maybe is uh, just kind of characteristics of of kind of how they did things at the time. Um, and we don't really learn. I mean, they tell a story pretty much. We know it. We get a couple, I think, new little tidbits of information in Moses. And and who knows if they're accurate when he talks about Moses, who knows if they're accurate or if at this point they're just traditions of the Jews that aren't accurate. But I'm, I'm inclined to think they probably knew more than we did about Moses. So uh, I love, you know, th this idea that uh, Moses was learned. We get in verse 22. Moses is learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. And um and we we do get more here than we do in the Exodus story about uh, Moses, uh, why he's uh, smiting uh, an Egyptian. And also, I love verse 25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood how that by that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. So that tells us that early on, Moses understood what his role is supposed to be. Um, and I think that's that's worth knowing. But. Anyway, he, he keeps going. That's that's really we don't learn a lot of new stuff in this long, long discussion of uh, of Jewish history, although it's pretty short. I mean, shorter than the Bible. So that's good. But um, oh, I'm pretty still? sure for how much history it covers. You froze up for a second. Say that last sentence again. Oh, I was just saying it, it, it's uh, pretty short for how much history it covers, but it's still a pretty long sermon. Um, and uh, but the whole point seems to be he is showing them. Like he goes into how they, even with Moses and all that happened, they they start sacrificing to idols, and uh, then Solomon builds a house, but uh, the people chose not to follow uh, God. And I think verse 51 is where he really starts to hit on uh, his purpose of giving the first 50 verses, uh, which are, is this long history. And he, he says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they've slain them which shewed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have uh, been now the betrayers and murderers. So basically what he's saying is, I've just showed you that we have a long history of people rejecting God when they shouldn't, and I'm so Glad to see, I'm being sarcastic here, but uh, so glad to see you've joined that club. Way to go. You're <laughs> just as good as our ancestors at persecuting prophets and uh, killing people who God sent. All right. And and that's just what I think he's saying. I know you're going to kill me. I just want you to know how that fits into things. And uh, hopefully you feel really proud of yourselves for being part of your perverse father's actions. Right. Yeah. It's a way to end off the way he says, which I, I, I'd like you just said. Which fathers have you not persecuted? And that does not go over well nope. with these guys. He, uh, and <laughs> it's I, accurate, he, but yeah, it's accurate. He and he maybe he had a little bit of sarcasm, like you just said. He might have had that kind of attitude where he said, you know, which of you not persecuted? That that's. And then he's and then he leaves off, of course, saying, of course, you just killed the just one, 
you know, yeah. Jesus Christ, you just killed that one. Uh, yeah. You know, the, yeah. the greatest of all. So we and, know uh, you're, we know you're following in this tradition really well. So I guess I'll just slip into it uh, in my role too. <laughs> right. And so as soon as he says that, um, let's see. Uh, yeah. Verse who, 54. Yeah. 54. Well, first of all, 53, who received the law by disposition of angels and have not kept it. So again, yeah. you've had, you've had angels come down and deliver this stuff to you and still you don't do it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart. So that is, uh, they, they yeah. are, that the Book of Mormon says, uh, has similar, similar phraseology when it says they were cut to the very center. So they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. <laughs> so they were very mad and they, they basically just seize on him and they grab him immediately yeah. and throw him out. Um, and he's stoned. Um, and what does he say as he's being stoned? Yeah, this is, this is powerful and incredible stuff. Uh, you can go ahead and read it. Yeah, he says a couple of, um, they cried with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. So they actually held their ears. It looks like they just, I can't hear anymore. I'm going to, yeah. and they ran upon I'm him. I'm not listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nah, la, 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 la. You can't. So they grab him and they cast him out of the and they stone him and they witness. And so they, sometimes they might throw you off a cliff or they might, you know, different things. Um, and they laid down their, so it looks like the witnesses, they laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. So Paul whose name is Saul at this point is in the audience. Yeah. And they basically take their, their coat off and like, Hey, hold this a minute. I'm going to go do the stoning. So they're serious. And they stone Stephen, uh, calling upon God. Upon God. Well, they stone Stephen, right. comma. And then Stephen is calling upon God saying, Lord Jesus receive my spirit. So he knows he's going to die. Yeah. And he kneeled down. They cried with a loud voice, Lord, uh, lay the sin not to their charge. So first of all, he asks, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And then he says, basically what the, what the Savior said, you know, forgive yep. them. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. But he laid the sin not to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Well, he might have passed out, but he died quickly yeah. thereafter, and depending on what they mean by fell asleep. Yeah, I think that's the euphemism for saying that he died. But um, And I love verse 56, where he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Right? He he has seen uh, those who he is bearing testimony of, even as he dies for them, and will be ushered into their presence uh, shortly thereafter, I assume. It would be interesting to know the eyewitnesses who saw this who recorded this so that luke could have it i don't think luke is here at the at the time no i don't uh, he, think so either so but he there's some eyewitnesses that see this and record this for them so it would have been it's interesting and it may have been hear, paul i mean paul luke is is, is one of the ones who interacts with luke uh, quite a bit and yes. he is there and he my is guess there. is he remembers this fairly well Yes. In fact, it, it um, ended off in, in, in uh, we just ended off in, in chapter seven, where it says he fell asleep. And chapter eight has no time, it, it, no time elapsed. This is just a continuation of seven. And mm -hmm. in verse one of chapter eight, and Saul was consenting unto his death. So in other words, he, he sanctioned, he somehow was one of the inquisitors that had been going around rooting out these so-called heretics. And, and there was a great persecution against the church. So he was there. That's we know that Paul was there. They laid the, the witnesses laid their coats at his feet uh, as they went to go stone Stephen, and then uh, and then so Saul's there. He consents his death, and he continues on this this uh, this inquisition against 
the church and he goes through and begins to persecute them. And uh, we do find out that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. So he was, he was mourned. Um, but Saul takes, now we hear more about Saul. We get a little, in, a little uh, introduction to Saul. And now we hear about Saul and he creates havoc of the church, uh, made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women committed to them into prison. So th he's, he, this is, he's creating mobs. Really vigorous. Go, yeah. This isn't just like, you know, shaming people in a public square. He's hauling people to prison. He's pulling men and women out of their houses. Um, and there's, there's uh, other accounts where people were killed. And apparently he was either a part of that or at least was sanctioning it or yeah, driving it encouraging forward, it so yeah encouraging it yeah yeah paul's a full throttle kind of guy whatever he's doing he's doing it full <laughs> throttle and so when he's against the church he's really against the church and when he's for it he's really for it and in some ways um i would say that the rest of the new testament really kind of starting here with chapter eight the the new testament well it, it's certainly the rest of the new testament is certainly about christ Let, let's mm -hmm. be clear about that but in terms of uh mortal focuses is probably about paul more than anyone else from here on out uh, i mean in acts you're still going to see peter playing a, a pretty big role but it's going to be more about paul than about peter from here on out mm -hmm. um you're going to see in terms of the the epistles or writings yes you have peter and you have john and you have james different james but, but you have peter james and john i guess but uh mm -hmm. but who you have mostly is paul uh and so you you almost get the feeling that uh like the first five chapters of Acts, they're, they're really about Peter and, and John. But you get um, by the time you get to chapter six, chapter six seems to be setting things up for Stephen, uh, the story of Stephen. And the story of Stephen seems to be setting things up for Saul. And then we're just going to be Saul or Paul from here on out. So uh, the, it's not that the other things aren't important. It certainly is. And the, the story of um Peter that we'll do next time, Peter receiving the vision to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's, you know, Paul is the one who will uh, do that more than most uh, and so on. And so it's almost it's almost like that story is important for understanding what Paul is going to do. Um, but in some ways, what I what we want to focus on, I mean, Luke is a Gentile mm -hmm. and he focuses on the gospel going to Gentiles. I think that's really what it is. I think Luke is trying to tell a story. This is how Christ we Gentiles came to Christ and Paul is a central, maybe the central figure in that, at least the way Luke conveys it, he's, he becomes the central figure. Well, he's definitely the missionary that goes on all these missions. And, yeah. and he seems to be now, he was a uh, part of the Sanhedrin and, or we think, I guess, I don't really yeah. know if there's he's a, certainly a fair, a very active and, and uh, known Pharisee. Yeah, right. So, and so he's obviously lettered and, and he knows writing. So it's very possible that one of the reasons why we have so much about Paul is because he left behind good writings. Yeah. And, and because and then, Luke knew him uh, yeah. and worked with him. Right. Yeah. I, I think he, you're right. And because also, you know, he, he left good writings and he had regular contact and he did these missions. So they knew who he was. He'd been to these places. He sent them letters and, um, and, uh, there's a there was some discussion if Peter really knew um, how to write well, uh, yeah. if he would, and, and and especially maybe not in Greek, which is what all the these this, other people are going to need right. to read, right? 
that's going to be that's going to be the language that's like the english of now you know that's yeah. what people are reading a lot the lingua franca right so, yeah, yeah. Franca, exactly yeah. That. so that's going forward and so that's not to diminish uh peter or any of the other apostles it just might be that this is what most of these things were preserved through paul's writings and through paul's mission is he gets out there and and uh, is able to reach a lot of people and they they have his writings with them so yeah that's some of the, there's a uh, uh, sorry keep going no, no, that's right. Go ahead. I was just going to say, there is a part of me that wonders if, if we hadn't gotten maybe someone else that wrote what we have as Acts or, or someone, yeah. One day we may find that like Barnabas or uh, maybe if some other people actually played just as big a role as Paul in missionary work. But I think you're right. That combination of, of uh, Paul being a, a, an eloquent letter writer mm -hmm. and the, his letters being preserved and the role he plays in Acts. Uh, make him more of a central figure, perhaps, than what he really was. I don't know. It's we'll have to wait for the big video on the sky to find out about that. Well, he he does have a really good conversion story too. Yes, and and uh, in fact, let's get to that. We're we're at that point now. So Saul is yeah. um is is on the scene. He's um he is persecuting the people, and we have we then we have a little interlude here where Philip goes down to Samaria and preaches Christ to them, yeah. and. He does I just love that he's and, casting out devils and he's doing yeah, all sorts of stuff and converting all sorts of people. And, mm -hmm. and of course, he's teaching an Ethiopian about Isaiah. We can't skip that part uh, <laughs> because uh, we like Isaiah. But anyway, keep going. Well, you tell him you're the Isaiah scholar. So, well, I mean, uh, that's all I had to say about Isaiah. So, yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a fun story, though. Um, he first of all goes down to meet Simon and Simon is a sorcerer. Right. Yeah. And um there's different opinions on exactly what they mean by sorcery there is it the kind yeah. of sorcery we associate with witchcraft or i'm not really sure exactly what that sorcery means yeah. but there's probably someone who's more skilled on that than i would be for sure uh what and but anyway he's he's a well-known figure in the area and they they um they, they teach to him and he believes on it and he is baptized in verse 12 um uh, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized both men and women. Simon himself also believed also. And when he was baptized, so he, Simon does get baptized. And he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles. And so he's watching them. And then they in verse 15, um, they come and lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Ghost. Yeah, and that's uh, that's Peter and John because right. they have the Melchizedek priesthood. Exactly. So, oh yeah, I, I should have said that. That's Peter and John. So Philip is there, but he, but he doesn't seem to, like you mentioned earlier, he doesn't seem to give them the Holy Ghost. So, but the, then they send them Peter and John. So Peter and John come down and they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Ghost, the the new the new converts that is. And when they had fallen upon them, they were uh, they'd only been baptized. Verse seventeen, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Ghost was was given. He offered them money. Now he gets a rebuke for this, but I want to think good of Simon. I this you hear all the time when we're in seminary when we're talking about authority and it's 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 appropriate place in the church and not everybody can have this power and it can't be bought with money. They Peter uh, Peter says to them, "Thy money perish with me, because thou thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money." Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for the heart is not right in the sight of God. So he got baptized, but Peter lays it out him. Therefore, repent of the wickedness and pray to God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven. 
uh, where I perceived our in the gall of bitterness. So he did get baptized, but now Peter is like, yeah, you got to fix it up. And then, uh, and, and this is what I like about Simon, because we, you kind of think about the Simon the sorcerer, and he's a bad guy. Is he? I don't know. He seems to be converted. Then he said, then answered Simon and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which he has spoken come to me or come upon me. Sorry. Now we don't really know what happened. It doesn't say anything no. more. It just says that they returned to Jerusalem. But it sounds like Simon is sincere there. He gets baptized and maybe he still has some old ways hanging on. Yeah, which is really common, right? Yeah, it it takes a while to get rid of uh, sure. the ideas that are stuck in your head. Right. You're right. I cannot imagine a more fantastic response. Most people, when called out that way, would not respond that way. Yeah. He didn't go away sorrowing like we've heard elsewhere. And he doesn't, he says, well, pray for me, you know. So I'd like to think that Simon uh, got his act together. Yeah. I don't know. We don't know any more about him, but that's the that's the story of Simon. And then we get to the part where uh, Philip, uh, now we, we switch to Philip, who goes down, and he's told by the angel of the Lord, hey, go to Gaza, go to the such and such place, and, um, and, there, and there's an Ethiopian. So someone who's of the Ethiopian descent somewhere, uh, we, we associate that with the, with the, the, the black um, African kind of uh, tradition, not tradition, yeah. but... Uh, but the, the the race, the black African, and also the the uh, uh, what do I want to say? What, Candace is the name of a queen. It's like a Caesar or whatever, but it's that. Um, yeah. What's the the word I'm looking She's for? The queen of of Ethiopia. So it's kind of like the the yeah. royal title or whatever. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So there's a a, a um, what's the group that that travels with you? An the entourage. An entourage or an emissary yeah. or whatever. Yeah. There's this man who's traveling um, under yeah, the authority. And eunuchs are often uh, someone who's in, uh, given a lot of power or authority um, because they they can be trusted. They're not in it to take over and have their sons rule after them or something like that. Right. Right. And so he's traveling under the authority of, of Candace Queen. So Candace, again, is like a, a term like Caesar or, you know, Caesar became used as, that, as a word. So Candace is a name for a queen. And um, he's traveling with them, and they, uh, and the spirit said to Philip, "This is in verse twenty-nine. Go near and join thyself to the chariot." So there's an entourage going on there, and he just kind of, yeah. Well, I love, there. I love it says Philip ran thither to yeah. him. Like ran the spirit tells him to go, he doesn't he doesn't take his time going over there. He gets there fast. Well, and there's a chariot, so they're rolling along. So someone is rolling this chariot along with this with this uh, this this person who has some authority and he's reading Isaiah. He's reading a scroll of Isaiah and Philip runs through to him and said, uh, and he heard him read the prophet Isaiah, which is another way of saying Isaiah, right? It's the Greek. It's the Greek way. Yeah. And said, understandest thou what thou, what thou readest. So do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I, the eunuch answers him. And he says, how can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip would come up and sit with him so he invites him up on the chair he's like how do i know so you seem to know what's going on why don't you get up here and tell me what's going on how, what am i supposed to read about that and then you tell us what happens then carrie what, what well and do? i'll just say i love this phrase so that's why let me see if i can find oh yeah uh that's part of why the uh subtitle to my book on isaiah is a guide in a commentary because i actually lead out with this story 
that often we feel like we need someone to guide us in uh, in understanding Isaiah. And that's certainly what this eunuch is like. I, I need someone to guide me to understand this. And Philip's like, oh, I'm your guy. I think most of the people who've read Isaiah or even Second Nephi where he quotes Isaiah are in the same boat. Like, what, what is he talking about? There's so many different metaphors and symbols and whatever. What It's hard to follow the thread if you don't know exactly what's going on. So go ahead. Yeah, well, and, and he happens to be reading Isaiah 53, and and uh, the eunuch asked Philip, so what, who's the, the prophet speaking of, of himself or of some other man? Now, my answer would be yes, speaking of both, right? And uh, the uh, he's speaking of Christ, of himself, and of other people still. But uh, at this point, Philip wants to teach him about Christ, so he just tells him, Christ. And and this, I mean, Isaiah 53 is the perfect place to teach people about Christ. So he uses that as an opportunity to teach about Christ. And uh, the eunuch is his uh, golden convert, right? They're, they're on their way. And the eunuch says, oh, look, there's some water. Uh, is there anything that would stop me from getting baptized? Right. And missionaries hate it when someone says that, but Philip <laughs> put up with it and, uh, and he was baptized. So it's this, uh, one of these golden moments where the spirit said, this guy's ready, Philip acts on it, and the guy was ready. Yeah, so that's a great thing. Well, the Lord sent him after him anyway, so he must have had a plan. We yeah. don't know what else happened there, but the, maybe some good things happened from there, and other people were converted, but, uh, but Philip was called by the Lord, and it says angel, and then it also says the spirit of the Lord gave him some hints on what to do, so yeah. he apparently wanted to get that, uh, I like those ones, and uh, we get some good insight on how the church is growing again. Uh, yeah. We, uh, so let's get to where we talk about Saul, and then we'll end off here for today's episode. Um, now we're in chapter 9 and verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So again, he's he's really raising up. So we started talking about Saul um, two chapters ago, and he, Stephen was, uh, was stoned. And then we have the interludes that Philip does these things, and these things happen in between. And now we're back to Saul, and he's still at it. He's uh, persecuting the church, and um, he goes to the Damascus synagogue, um, and uh, see, see, Damascus to the synagogues, and if he found any of this way, whether you were men or and, women, and that this way is Christianity, right? Right, and he might bring them, uh, bring them bound on Jerusalem. So if he's if he, if you are saying you're a Christian, let's bind him up, put him in prison, or you know, haul him down yeah. to Jerusalem, and and. Uh, I think he's intent on stomping out this uh, this insurrection in the in the in the in the faith, right? That you know this this Jewish uprising and and um, and not just uprising from that, but just the, the departing from what the traditional thing has been. And so he's going to stomp this out, and he's giving it his best best shot. Yeah, and and uh, I, I think I mean we all know this story and it's an incredible story, but I think it's it's worth thinking about maybe kind of a bigger picture here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, this is not who you would any of the people of the day would have expected Christ to appear to and have him become one of the most vigorous forces for Christianity, you know, in, in the church. Um, I think most people would have said, "Oh, yeah, that guy Saul that's going around and and uh, binding, you know, help kill uh, Stephen, and he's trying to send all Christians to prison." That's not who they would have thought of. But um, but the Savior does things differently. And in fact, as I kind of think, you know, we we talk about the road to Damascus because that's what he's on the he's journey to Damascus, um, and it's become almost a metaphor for um, people who are on a, a journey where God teaches them 
and mm-hmm. touches them and they come to Christ, right? But we have a couple of roads, uh, actually, that are, are famous roads in the New Testament. One of them is the, the road to Jericho, and we get that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And mm-hmm. it's a surprising story because the, the surprising thing is that it's not who you would expect that is going to, to be the neighbor and uh, who does things right. It's a Samaritan, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get the famous road to Emmaus, uh, where what happens is that these uh, these people who are thought that the Messiah meant one thing, Christ is going to teach them that it means something else. And they're going to be surprised, but they're going to come to understand, it. oh, the the what I thought of as the Messiah is not what the Messiah is. So Christ on the road to Jericho, Christ is kind of bending people's minds that who you think of as a neighbor and who you think of as someone that follows right. Christ is not necessarily who you thought it was. Now on the road to Emmaus, he's going to bend their minds uh, who you thought was the Messiah is not necessarily who you, you thought it was. And he's going to combine both of them here on the road to Damascus because no one is expecting Paul to be the good neighbor, as it were, the good Samaritan, the one who will go and help people He's and, and become a great Christian. That's not who they're expecting. No, and, no. And he's going to have Paul come to understand what the Messiah really is and, and who the Messiah really is. Um, so he kind of combines those other two roads there with Paul or Saul, whichever one you want to say. But um, but it's interesting that these happen on roads, and it, and it seems to be, I mean, there's probably actually something psychological about it. We know that as you're walking, that that involves one side of your brain, and then if you talk while you walk, that that actually helps you understand things better because you're involving both sides of your brain. So there's maybe something to that. But I think it's even more this symbolic idea of as you're journeying to wherever you're going to go, Christ is going to take you somewhere different. Uh, if you will listen to him, right? And I love the phrase that uh, that the Savior uses here. Well, there are a couple like really classic phrases. So we're in, in chapter nine and we, we got, you know, verse three, there, a light shines about him, a light from heaven. And verse four, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, and I love this, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's almost like what he says to Alma, right? Yeah, right. if you want to be destroyed, fine, but quit persecuting my church. You know, said, yeah. why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now, this is the phrase. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Or they'll often, uh, many translations will translate it as goads, right? So what it is, right. is these are the, the, the sticks that you use. Uh, to to prod animals as long as you're hurting them. So you, you're, you're poking them to herd them where they want to go. And I think what Christ is saying is, I've been trying to guide you somewhere and you've been fighting me. And right. that's pretty hard for you. So let's let's stop that. How, in seminary, that? we hear this, uh, of course, you hear this in, in uh, section uh, 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants about the kick against the pricks. And I have a picture of these that I would take to seminary and they're just basically long sticks, and they might have a little barb or a hook on there. Yeah. And you just kind of give the give the the cattle a a, a a twinge in the back, and that's how you herd them along. And so yeah. exactly what you're saying, he's like, I, you know, I've been trying to herd you or send you in, not just Saul, but the people in the right direction, but Saul being the representative of these people. Yeah. I've been trying to herd you around the direction, and you're kicking against the prick. So the 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 cattle that uh, if you if you ever see one of these things. You tap them, they'll kick back at it. They'll try to kick, and that's why it's on a stick, because you don't want to do that right next to them, because they'll kick. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so you they're kind of whack them to move along, and they'll, the, the animal will kick back and try to you know fight against it and go the other way. Well, he's not going to let them go the other way. So continue, please. 
Well, I, I think that's exactly the point. And we need to all ask ourselves. Uh, I know there have been plenty of times in life where I have been on a road to somewhere and I thought it's where the Lord wanted me to go, but he actually just wanted me on that road so he could send me on a different road. Um, and sometimes you kick against that. You fight against it. Uh, and so if we're going to combine a couple of things we've talked about today, um, we've talked about maybe sometimes letting the world influence us too much. And sometimes we're going down a road that is a road God wanted us on. And, and we are following God, but we're also following the world on that road. And God's going to use the cattle prod, as it were, uh, the prick or the goad or the cattle prod, and uh, maybe sometimes even an electric cattle prod. And uh, and he's going to try and, and force us away from the path that, that goes down both godly and worldly ways, because that will always end up being just worldly sooner or later. And he's trying to get us to take that path that he wants us to take, which is the path that leads to him. Um, and, and it's not going to be what we were thinking. We're going to have to bend our minds uh, and, or let Christ bend our minds, but we're all on that road somewhere. So there's the question to ask ourselves today, uh, combining two questions. We, we talked earlier about how is the world influencing you too much? And now uh, what road are you on? So let's combine those two and say, uh, what do you need to do? to get the world out of your mind more and Christ into your mind more so that Christ can goad you where you need to go and to become what you need to become. Saul is going to become Paul, right? He's going to become, and that's, that's largely because he's going to become someone that's going to the, the Greek world. So mm -hmm. Saul is a very Jewish name and he's going to switch that. But, um, Christ wants us to become something different and travel a different road than uh, whatever road you're on now, Christ wants you to get to a different road. There's no doubt of that. Um, and hopefully you're on a pretty good road right now, but he's got a different path in mind for you that will end in a better place than what you've had in mind. And uh, so how much are you going to kick against the pricks while he, yeah. while he does that? That's really the question. That's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Before we end off here, though, there's one more thing I want to get to, but we're going to answer the question that you put again, that you stated earlier. Um, so I don't want to take away from the point you just made that, hey, oh, no, this let's, is a, let's keep going. This is for us. But this last little part, we need to we need to get this in. So Paul, after this, uh, his name's not Paul yet. It's still Saul. But he says, what will you have me do in verse six? It, he's struck blind and he's and the Lord says, go into the city and. Um, he can't see, so they pick him up and, and they take him, they lead him by the hand, they lead him back into the, the city, and he was there for three days without sight, and he didn't eat or drink. Now, now we jump over to uh, another disciple, and this is interesting. Yeah. And then there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Yeah, Ananias. Okay. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, uh, a vision to Ananias. Okay. And he said, behold, uh, oh, it, I'm sorry, the Lord says in a vision. And this is him saying Ananias. So it's basically like when he called, yeah. um, uh, um, who say, who, here am I? Yeah, well, Abraham or all sorts of others. I mean, that's clearly what he said is, yeah. uh, you know, notice how they have M here in, in uh, italics, yeah. but really behold me or Hineani yeah. is the, the Hebrew of it, but behold me. Well, here am I. Yeah. So, so Ananias answers, behold, here am I. And Lord said, arise and go to the street, which is called straight. And inquire of the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for whom, uh, for behold, he prayeth, and and he's um, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. So he's saying, 
the Lord said, or the, the spirit or whatever the Lord is saying to him, hey, um, I want you to go seek out Paul uh, because Paul has seen in a vision, or Saul, we should say Saul at this point. Saul has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias, that's you, is going to come put your hands on him that he might get his sight back. And Ananias knows who he is. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man yeah, how much like, evil he hath done by the saints in Jerusalem. So imagine getting this call. Hey, go find Paul of, of um, Paul of Tarsus or Saul of Tarsus and go lay your hands on him and heal him. It's like, hey, I heard about this guy. This guy's yeah. not a good guy. This guy's trouble. Are yeah, you sure about he, this? This guy yeah, is trouble. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and here he hath authority from the chief priest to, to bind all that call on thy name. So all the Christians. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. Now, that's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. That's why we hear about Paul. Paul is the chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. So that's Paul's mission. That's why we hear a lot about Paul, because the Lord designated him. Again, that doesn't take away from what Peter or any of the other apostles did or what their, their role was. But Paul, because of his station or his preparation or whatever it is, has a very miraculous conversion. And the Lord says, I've chosen him to be the vessel to take this to the Gentiles and the kings and the, and the other children of Israel. So he's, this is, he's telling them of his calling. That's why we know about a lot about Paul. Yep. And and maybe to just add to that, I mean, I understand Ananias' uh, questioning. I don't I don't think the Lord's going to fault him for saying, are you sure this guy's, uh, yeah. he's been killing us. Um, but we also have to say, sometimes it's hard for us to let people change uh, or to believe that they've changed. And uh, I find it interesting that when we get down to verse 26, and Saul comes to Jerusalem, and he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And I don't blame them. They're like, hey, wait a minute. This guy was yeah. helping to kill Stephen last time we saw him. Right. I don't I don't think this is a good idea. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas has been watching him and says, I'll, I'll vouch for this guy. I'll stick up for this guy. And Barnabas becomes his senior companion for his first mission journey and uh, is really kind of a tutor to Saul slash Paul um, mm -hmm. because Barnabas was willing to, to see that he had changed and and uh, allow for that and convince others that he had changed. And there's something uh, for all of us to learn about that as well. Uh, agreed. And um, yeah, how does the Lord, first of all, to your first question, you were saying just a minute ago, what road are we on and what road do we need to be on? And also we'll add to that. Um, let's be careful about before we judge others you know, about who can change all oh, that, that. They'd never be a good candidate for church. How do you know? You don't know. This guy was the worst of the worst as far as being an enemy. He was an enemy to these Christians. And uh, you, you wouldn't want to walk up to him like, hey, I'm a Christian. Let me lay my hands on you and let you receive your sight. You know, he would throw you into prison, you know, before he just looked at you. Of course, he was yeah. blind at the moment. So anyway, <laughs> but but then he becomes, look how skilled he becomes, because later it says he he amazes the Jews. He confounds them. So he seems to be well prepared for what the Lord wants him to do. He just needs the right motivation. And I guess that's a big blinding light out of the sky and, and a stern rebuke and going blind. Okay. But he, after that, he becomes a very effective tool. And this is why we know a lot about Paul, like you were mentioning earlier. So we're kind of answering where you 
we're going at the beginning of this uh, conversation. But this is why we know a lot about Paul and, and how he becomes, uh, this is why we have so much about him from here on out, or not, not just about him, but from his, from his teachings through Paul's yeah. ministry. Um, this is how we know a lot about uh, the rest of the, the New Testament. So anyway. And, and maybe just uh, before we wrap up, uh, next week's lesson is, I think, one of the most important it's about one of the most important events in in the history of the church uh, mm. as the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And so maybe this this chapter really sets the scene for that, uh, the end of this chapter. So maybe we'll just set the scene. This will be our teaser for next week, <laughs> um, because what happens is you've got Peter, who is it, it's you know, we, we kind of transition from Saul to Peter because we've got these apostles and they're saying, OK, yeah, uh, We'll accept him. And then Peter is going everywhere, teaching people, and he, and he goes to a place called Lydda, and um, he heals someone there. And that's near the city of Joppa, which is Jaffa. And uh, there's a, a woman there who's a devout disciple who dies, Tabitha or Dorcas, depending upon which uh, language you want to use. And uh, since Paul, Peter's next door in uh, the next door town, it's close to Jaffa. Then the disciples say, hey, Peter, can you come over and, and heal this woman? And he does. He, he raises her um, and uh, says, Tabitha, arise, which I think is so interesting because, of course, we have the Talitha arise, um, which is, you know, my daughter arise. But anyway, uh, it sounds so similar to what the Savior said when he raised someone from the dead. Um, and she opened her eyes and she saw Peter and she sat up. And uh, now he's in Jaffa and he's going to hang out in Jaffa uh, at a, the house of a Simon, a tanner. And that's where uh, we'll find him in the next uh, chapter is still at Simon the Tanner's house when he has this vision that is so important. So that's our teaser to just get that story all set up. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So tune in next time and uh, uh, talk about uh, about Paul's uh, calling on a mission now and, and where he goes from there and, and Peter at the Tanner. So that's good. There's uh, some great stuff. there. So tune in next time. Hey, that's all the time we have for this uh, this week on uh the scriptures are real so thanks so much for joining us we hope that you'll spread the word to other people that can use this if this is helpful to you if it gives you a better understanding and makes you connect with the scriptures and the people that are in it uh, please share that message so see you next time thank you